Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, I'm joined by Johnny Harvey, grandson of the co-founder of Harvey Comics, which at one time was one of the largest publisher of kids' comics in America. You know them as the publishers of such famous characters as Casper the Friendly Ghost and Richie Rich, which for a time were some of the most popular comic characters in the world. And yet, Harvey Comics is almost a footnote in comics history now. Johnny Harvey and I go through the history of Harvey Comics, talk about their legacy, their rise and fall, and some of the interesting, interesting battles that caused the company to collapse. Hope you enjoy the show. It starts right after this commercial. Thank you, Johnny Harvey, for joining me on Classic Comics Cavalcade. Tell me a little, little bit about your project, Ghost Empire, The Forgotten Story of Harvey Comics. Hey, thank you for having me on. Uh, the project is about my grandfather, uh, Leon Harvey, and his family's comic book company, Harvey Comics, which was founded by his twin brother, Alfred Harvey, and uh, their oldest brother, Robert, uh, joined as well, and they ran it together as a family business for decades. Um, Alfred Harvey started the company in about 1939 and you know they they my family had the company until uh late 80s 1989 and they were putting out characters like Casper the Friendly Ghost, Richie Rich amongst a lot of other of those famous Harvey uh cartoon characters and my story is the story of Harvey and and what it was doing and the story of the family and how the family setting precedent and kind of also following trends in the comic book industry at the time and how family ultimately, uh, you know, caused its downfall, among other industry things that I'm sure we'll talk about the 70s and 80s and the, the changing landscape of the company. It's a fascinating, twisting tale. Uh, maybe we should just talk about it chronologically. So how did they get into the comic book business? Well, Alfred, in particular, he, he was... The, from what I understand, the big entrepreneur. He was the guy making everything happen. He was working originally for Fox Comics, which I'm sure you know all about Fox, mm-hmm. and kind of the people that kind of passed through Fox in the 30s. And Alfred was, you know, their original name was, uh, their last name was Wernikoff, and they're Russian. Um, you know, Alfred was born in America, and, uh, and Leon was born in America, but... Uh, I think Alfred soon realized that, you know, Wernoff comics would never sell. And his middle name was Harvey. So in 1939, you know, I don't know if uh, Wernoff comics been sold, but um, who knows? I mean, most of, the, most of the people, as you know, were, you know, Jewish or uh, Italian or, um, you know, pretty much immigrants that, that really couldn't find work in reputable fields like journalism or advertising. And so Alfred kind of stumbled into Fox Comics after doing some advertising work, I believe, and uh, under the Harvey name, but uh, but was working for Fox. And from what I understand, kind of learned how, you know, Fox was making all this money, but Fox was not somebody, Victor Fox, that is, the owner of, I guess, Fox Publications or Fox Comics, whatever he called it. They, you know, he was not, he was a very notorious businessman is what I've been told <laughs> yes. and what I've read. Yes, he was. <laughs> uh, to say the least. And, and so Alfred, I think, wanted to make a, or realize he could actually make money in publishing and uh, 
provide for his family and but he could you know start a comic book company that was a little bit nicer than fox um and treated people a little bit better and um he brought my uh grandfather his twin brother leon in as um head of editorial um when uh america got involved in the war because a lot of people uh you know joe simon who was you know best friends with alfred and uh, a lot of these early uh, comic book godfathers, if you will, uh, went to the Pentagon and created all this uh, pamphlet comic book material for the war effort. So Alfred went to the Pentagon and needed somebody to kind of run the business while he was uh, away from New York. And so he brought in my grandfather, who had studied art at Pratt uh-huh. in New York. So my grandfather was kind of running the ship, just kind of, uh, just keeping the, sh- the ship afloat um, and coordinating with his brother and Alfred would come home on the weekends and um, kind of make sure everything was okay. But then by the time the war ended, Harvey had kind of established himself on newsstands and Alfred had made all these connections uh, at the Pentagon because all of these very famous uh, cartoonists and writers and editors were working there. And the government, as I understand at the time, kind of had a... Uh, kind of had control over the paper market because, you know, the government was, was using all these resources for the war effort. And so when Alfred returned, there was only a handful of publishers that could actually get their hands on paper. So he was making deals with a lot of different people, some of the most famous you know, comic book artists and, and writers uh, ever that would come and work for him because he had access to paper, but they were doing it under pseudonyms because they were working for other publishers at the time, namely Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, who Alfred knew at Fox Comics and developed a really strong relationship, particularly with Joe Simon, uh, for their entire lives. Um, and, and so they came to Harvey and were doing work and, and, and actually creating some of these books, but they just, they didn't want it, you know, timely or whatever, whoever they were working for at the time to know. So. They, uh, they never mentioned that they're, you know, their names, but they loved Al and they liked working for him. And when they had an idea, they would throw it at him and he'd say, yeah, sure, publish it, whatever, I don't care. <laughs> um, and they did really well. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Um, and they, they started by licensing a lot of these really famous uh, comic book characters and, and then creating some of their own. Um, but it really wasn't until the early 50s uh, that they... They made a partnership with uh, the Paramount uh, cartoon characters uh, that they were able to really, I guess, influence and put the market with those kid characters. I got to ask you about the Black Cat. I love the fact that the Black Cat appeared two months before Wonder Woman first appeared. Um, and she really is the first female superheroine to be in her own comic book. Yeah, isn't that kind of funny? Everyone kind of uh hails wonder woman but harvey was kind of already doing this uh yeah black cat was an incredible uh i guess you call her a superhero she was a hollywood stunt actress by day and then she fought bad guys at night um and yeah she she got you know and when of course world war ii happened everybody was making their their superhero characters and all their characters have to do something patriotic right so she was fighting nazis and teaming up with all these other people 
and she didn't have any superpowers, but, you know, like Batman, maybe, she was, you know, she was able to use her, you know, just regular human abilities to best the competition. Those are wonderful old strips, um, too. That Lee Elias art on those on the early Black Cat strips is really wonderful. It's got this kind of yeah, kind of yeah. very newspapers type of style to it. Yeah, and they also had a couple women that were working for Harvey at the time doing a lot of those books. Uh, Jill Elgin and uh, uh, Barbara uh, Hall. But it was interesting because uh, I think that there was a stigma against uh, women cartoonists in the 40s. Uh, you know, talk to Trina Robbins and she would tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting because when the men went to, you know, I'm, I'm using air quotes, when the men went to war, there was obviously a need in all these industries for women to step up and jump into a quote-unquote man's job, which I guess at the time was cartooning. And so... Barbara Hall, who's really incredible, she essentially uh, pretended she was a man. She would sign her name B. Period Hall because she didn't want anybody to know that her name was Barbara because they would maybe look down upon her. I'm not really sure, but I think cartooning at the time was not seen as a very um, reputable job. Um, So I think a lot of people either wanted to kind of hide their identity or. mask it in some way, use fake names, whatever it was, and that uh, seemed to be prevalent all around the industry. But yeah, Lee Elias was doing a lot of the covers for the books, and I mean, I think they really hold up today. I don't know about you, but... Yeah, they're really they're really highly entertaining. And it's true what you're talking about. Like uh, newspaper cartoonists were like rock stars of their time. People like Al Cap and right. Milton Kniff were huge, right? Yeah. But, like, the, the famous yeah. story about Stan Lee changed his name in part because at parties he could say he was a writer, not a comic book writer. Uh, which is right. just, like... My grandmother, who's 91 today, and she knew Stan Lee, she likes to say, you know, I knew Stan Lee before he was ever Stan Lee. <laughs> name is Stan Lee, Martin Lieber. So, um, yeah, she always jokes about that. But, um, yeah, they were all changing their names because, yeah, they wanted to write the next great novel or something, is what I heard about Stan you want to use that under his real name. That's interesting, though. There were how was there a pretty large staff of women working at Harvey, or was it just a few people kind of scattered uh, on the various titles? Well, I think Trina had really done the research. Um, Trina Robbins, and she found two of these of four women that she profiled in her book Babes of Arms. And two of those four women were working at Harvey, Jill and, and Barbara Hall. Hmm. There were a lot of women working at Harvey, but not a lot of women working on the actual comic books, from what I understand. Okay. Um, I just don't think there were a lot of women cartoonists after um, the 40s, um, after or after the wartime. I just, I'm just not really sure about that history, but there were all, a lot of women behind the scenes essentially running the business end of the company, uh, particularly Alfred Harvey's wife, uh, Vicky. She was, essentially, there was no advertising department before she came along, uh, or at least not in the way that that uh, kind of revolutionized the comic book business, um, you know, in terms of merchandising and partnerships. That just, you know, she, from what I've been told, was just the person uh, that was kind of shepherding that. Um, it really but, was no, a family-owned business then, huh? Yeah. 
kind of considered them either friends of the family or part of the family. And, um, yeah, it was, it was run by three brothers, and, and eventually, you know, a lot of the family got involved. Wives and kids and uh, the whole family fill up the staff, it sounds like, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, you brought they, they brought staff in as well, but that's that's very interesting. Um, so we were talking, you were talking a moment ago about the post-war period when they got the uh, rights to the famous studios creator, or, or characters, rather. At the same yeah. time, they were putting out some of the most hellacious horror comics that, ever, that were ever published. It's an interesting time for Harvey Comics. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, they, I, they were followers as much as they were kind of, um, I don't know, trendsetters, if you will. They were, they were, you know, EC Comics, of course, is known as probably the, uh, I don't know, the best horror comic group at that time. They, um, you know, they, they had started, obviously, with their books, and then they turned into Mad Magazine. Um, but Harvey, is, you know, they were doing some really, really gory stuff, and after the war, romance was, of course, huge. So Harvey was doing all these romance titles that Joe Simon and Jack Kirby were were kind of creating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during the 50s, of course, with McCarthyism era, and uh, obviously the famous, you know, time in comic books where everything kind of, uh, you know, there was a great comic book scare and everybody was, was afraid that these gory or sexual, uh, for the time, comic books, you know, were, were making their children deviant before they even understood what deviance was. Um, so Harvey, they were just really in the business of licensing popular characters and they created a bunch of uh, their own original, but they were really successful in just licensing very popular characters and giving the original owners or characters uh, 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 King features, you know, that owned a lot of the characters, or at least owned the right to syndicate the characters. They were making really crazy deals with them to just, that sometimes just split profits 50-50, and I, I, I don't think publishers were really doing that at the time, especially with the artists. But I think Alfred, who had connections with King features and understood how terrible it was to work for somebody like Victor Fox, I think he wanted to treat people uh, at least, you know, the way he would have wanted to be treated if he came up with a character. Um, and so fortunately for Harvey, they had just been licensing and working with the Paramount characters. So, um, when the comic book code of, you know, the comic books magazine of association of America came together and then the comic book authority came into place, um, you know, the comic book godfathers of Marvel, I guess, which was timely at the time, the DC Archie, uh, Harvey, you know, my grandfather, I guess was put as the treasurer of that association. I'm not really sure how much work he did for them. Hmm. Um, but they all kind of banded together, excluding Dell, which was just doing the Disney books and kind of promised that they would only be doing this very, you know, good natured comic book material that uh, they kind of just settled into the, well, hey, these Casper books and these little Audrey books are working for us. Why don't we just double down on that? And we'll just, you know, we'll just cut all the horror lines and just kind of expand our line to feature those kid characters. And for a while, that really, really worked out well for them until, of course, distribution changed and America changed and what content they were looking for and how they got it. Um, but it was it was really that kind of string of just, in a sense, they were just fortunate to already be aligned with the Paramount characters. Paramount eventually had to divest their characters 
they were, uh, there was a big antitrust lawsuit, long story short, they had to get rid of a lot of their assets. Um, and so Harvey, just being the people that were already doing the comic books, they, they thought Harvey would be the perfect fit. Hmm. They wanted to get the cartoon on television. And they couldn't do that under the Paramount name, so they wanted to use Harvey to kind of get in there and um, be the group that was kind of shepherding and uh, the face of the characters. So, yeah, by about late 50s, it was pretty much just that Harvey universe that people would know. Yeah, for any of us of a certain age, we remember the Harvey comics being all over the stands. It was funny, they were on the lower racks, and you'd see like three different levels of Richie Rich and Casper comics that the little kids would get at whenever they hit the stands. And they put out two dozen titles a month, I think, of of a lot of these characters. It was just incredible how they flooded the market, and yet people were still buying them for their kids. Yeah, that was the interesting thing to me is because I didn't grow up in that world. They just kept creating more and more different titles of Richie Rich in particular. You know, there was Richie Rich and then there was Richie Rich Millions and Richie Rich Billions and Richie Rich Dollars and Cents. And at one point they had over 30 different titles that came out on the newsstand uh, within like a two-month period, which is out of control. Um you know, I, no, nobody we've really talked to can really kind of explain why it was so popular. But I, people just, when they, you know, kids, when they go to the newsstand, they're like, oh, I've already picked up Richie Rich Millions. I haven't seen Richie Rich and Gloria or whatever it would be. Maybe this will be different. And I think it worked. Um, you know, Richie Rich was one of the most popular comic book characters of all time. So, um, Whatever they did, it was clearly working and resonating with that audience. What do you think it was that your grandparents did or their company did that made these characters so popular at the time? And wow, yeah, go ahead. Well, that's okay. And I'm thinking what caused them to fade too. And I, I think that's a little easier answer in a way. Maybe I, I don't know. I think that at its core the Harvey characters were really, really influential uh, for kids kind of learning, you know, somewhat a worldview of, of how to act and, and a moral fiber. And I think that parents really gravitated towards that. I think that they wanted to, you know, instill those messages on their kids. Whereas I don't know if superheroes were really something that parents were all behind. Uh, you know, I don't know what it was like to grow up and be, uh, into comics at that age, but I think that there was kind of security with Harvey that the messages that they were putting out were really, really good for kids. And I think that Casper in particular is a character that, you know, every, every kid wants to find a friend. Every mm-hmm. kid wants, um, you know, to find a friend. And every kid can relate to being bullied. And I think that Casper in particular was somebody that any kid could relate to um, in any generation. I think kids today really would relate to Casper. I think kids in the 40s when he was first coming out, the Paramount cartoon, I think they really resonated with Casper. So I think that friendship and and solving problems and kind of, I don't know, talk, you know, doing good in your community and uh, to your friends, I think that that just resonated with a lot of kids. But I think you have to ask people that really grew up with the characters during the, that time. I don't know, you know, but it's a good question, I think, because 
because, of course, the Marvel characters have really, you know, taken on a new life in the last couple of decades. And, you know, you may ask yourself, well, why, you know, why do these characters, you know, why do they resonate with kids today? Well, I don't know. They've, they've updated them and, and given them problems of today's world. So mm-hmm. um, I think that I think that Harvey, especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, I think that they really resonated with that demographic. I mean, Harvey was really for the youngest of kids. They were, they were for girls as well. There really wasn't another line that was doing kids' comics specifically geared towards young girls. Um, you know, as we've been kind of, you know, uh, I guess described by Tom DeFalco and some other people, you know, Harvey really was the ground floor if you were somebody that was trying to get into comic books. Um, you know, there was Dell, of course, um, which was huge, but Harvey had this brand that I think people really trusted. And if you were a girl, you, and if you were a comic book reader at a young age, you typically go to the Archie line themed. And if you're a guy, you'd move up to the Marvel and DC stuff, which was a little bit more mature as you aged. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as the comic book audience matured, um, particularly in, and by the late seventies and, you know, America at the time had kind of moved out to suburbia. People, kids in particular, on their walk home from school, weren't really, uh, they didn't really come in contact with a newsstand or just the way that distribution had happened for comic books back in the day. So I think that, you know, I mean, that was from a market perspective, you know, that definitely hurt the kid comic industry. Um, but from the inside, kind of looking back at it, what I've learned from my family is that there was a lot of different things that happened that, you know, I want people to actually watch the documentary, so I don't want to get into it too much, but, you know, there were some internal things that were happening that, um, you know, the average person outside looking in would have thought that Harvey was uh, immensely successful in the 70s with their marketing and how big Richie was, and mm-hmm. when, uh, you know, when you kind of look on the inside, it was actually not quite the case. Um, and, and, and they weren't really adapting to the times and the market. They were too busy kind of dealing with some internal issues um, that was just really making it difficult to run a really big company. Well, I think that's what's interesting about studying comics as an industry is that it, it's as much a business story as anything. Um, so I wrote a book right. about, I'll call the American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1970s. It talks a lot about that shift in distribution. Um, where the direct market really evolved because of um, a lawsuit against Marvel Comics and Jim Shooter essentially capitulated to the inevitable, but that also kind of killed um, the distribution of Harvey Comics in a big way. And so I'm sure that whole side of it had a big effect on um, your the family business and its profitability. Um, right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've talked to Steve Jeffy, who of course uh, is known for kind of capitalizing on this direct market. Um, and you can explain the direct market better than I can, I bet, because you've done that research. But Steve kind of, you know, explained, you know, he was a huge Harvey fan growing up, but by the time that the direct market had established itself, Harvey wasn't really on newsstands at the time. They had kind of, they went through a period of dormancy. And when they came back for a short stint in the mid-80s, frankly, according to Steve, there just wasn't any room for it. And... I think that the juxtaposition of having a very happy Richie Rich comic right next to a very gory comic, because of course in the 80s, 
and 90s, the comic code was irrelevant. You know, America had matured, and, and there was a lot more content out there that, you know, when you look back on it, it's like, oh, wow, what they were doing in the 40s really doesn't seem so bad um, compared to some other things that were happening. Yeah. So as I understand it, a lot of the comic code was just kind of thrown out the window, and they were just making books, and they were next to some more R-rated stuff, and I think that the idea of a parent bringing their kid to a comic book store for them to get a Casper book, Frank, it just really wasn't a recipe for success. Um, and, you know, a lot of these other companies, they found out later in the 90s and, and, and this century that, you know, the real way to make money is to license these characters for big budget movies and for merchandising and for television. And, uh, you know, I think my family at the time just was not really con- not really concerned about that. They thought that maybe that this was just a hiccup and that the market would, you know, kind of reestablish itself. And they weren't really thinking forward. They didn't really have, you know, young people in the industry. Like, of course, Marvel, you know, there was each decade there's a new turnover of people that are kind of shepherding the project, right? Um, and, of course, Marvel in the 50s was very different than Marvel in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Harvey really wasn't setting themselves up for success, and they kind of thought that it would just last forever. But, of course, you know, in any business, in any family business, uh, there comes a time when you need to bring in people that aren't in the family and give them kind of control to kind of make sure that things, you know, are are moving forward and not just staying in the past. I think one of the most interesting parts of comics in the 1980s is uh, Marvel launching Star Comics after, yeah. I guess, unsuccessfully trying to buy Harvey? Yeah, so long story short, Harvey stopped printing, and that freaked everybody out. This is 1982. And Marvel, Tom DeFalco in particular, who was the editor at the time, um, he, he really felt and advocated to his superiors that with Harvey out of the market, that that would really disrupt the industry. And it would make it more difficult to retain the comic book audience as a whole. Because as I understand it, Harvey, Archie, Marvel, those companies really just kind of understood their role in the market. And they didn't really have an issue, um, you know, with Harvey printing their books and Marvel printing their books. It, it diversified the line. Of course, Marvel was, you know, the biggest one by far of those those four that I mentioned outside of Dell. But they were really concerned at Marvel that that, that core audience would leave if Harvey was gone. So Marvel was going to buy Harvey, and they could actually use those characters and bring them into their universe. And the deal was essentially done. They had courted all the Harvey artists and editors and they were going to continue basically harvey under the harvey name because they didn't want to bring these characters under the marvel umbrella because like i guess at the time everybody all the comic book people all the comic book consumers at the time they didn't want to buy only marvel lines they wanted to buy other things um you know i heard a great story that you know they were really brainstorming how to bring back richie rich because richie rich had been gone from the newsstands for a while and they were going to you know, they were throwing out ideas like, oh, maybe, maybe Richie's, you know, been with Spider-Man and he brought Spider-Man <laughs> to his mansion and him and Spider-Man, like they're, he's making them a food. And, you know, it, 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 they were, I mean, they were really planning to reboot these characters. And, and 
maybe add some into the universe or at least kind of do some crossover stuff just to get some 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 chutzpah back into the back into the brand but uh you know my grandfather's twin alfred he uh, as i understand it just didn't want it to happen and that was that when you have three you know three equal uh shares of a company to three different sides of the family you got to get all three to agree and uh, you know in the beginning of the company, I think all three were on the same page, and then towards the 80s and late 70s, um, you know, they, they were agreeing less and less on things. Um, so the Marvel deal didn't happen, and of course Marvel, they freaked out, and they're like, okay, well, we still need a kid's line. Why don't we make our own? Because they had already courted all these Harvey artists and editors, uh, in particular to Jacobson and Warren Kremer. So they set up an office, produced the star line and they had moderate success with it i don't think marvel had ever had a successful kids line before then they did relatively well but of course the market at that time was just really against kid comic book characters um but star had you know was pretty successful for a handful of years well they had some characters that were pretty blatant ripoffs of the harvey characters too (laughs) royal roy was uh, pretty darn close to richie rich yeah, and the family sued, or threatened to sue, and, and Marvel said, this isn't worth it. You know, we'll just drop the character. But yeah, Royal Roy was, you know, a prince, and he had endless wealth, and, you know, Marvel would probably argue that, well, I mean, they're different characters. You know, Richie Rich was, you know, his whole shtick was about money, and he solved problems with using money, and, you know, this character was a, a prince, and a rich prince, but, you know, solved you know, commoners' problems and was kind of realizing and understanding his uh, immense wealth and how powerful that is and uh, seeing people that are less fortunate than him and then solving problems, you know, with that realization. I guess they would argue they're different characters, but I don't think the larger <laughs> comic community would see it that way. I don't know. But they dropped it um, pretty soon after. And, um, you know, it was unfortunate because at the time, RV wasn't even printing. So it was kind of a strange thing where they were just trying to, you know, maintain this IP, but they didn't know what to do with it at the time. They didn't have the means or resources to do it. Um, so Star continued for a little bit. And, you know, I mean, they, they really, it really was the Harvey people doing uh, Star Comics. I mean, Warren Kremer is really what people, you know, if you see a Harvey comic, it was really the style of Warren Kremer. Um, I mean, it's a very specific style. He drew all the characters in the same way. He was the lead artist of that star. So, you know, they would argue, okay, yeah, Royal Roy looks like Richie because it was drawn by the same artist. You know, that's, you know, that's Warren Kremer. You don't have, you know, IP claim on Warren Kremer, but um, at the end of the day, Royal Roy, Richie Rich, seems, I mean, you got, you got two R, you know, first yeah. and last names. <laughs> like, it's pretty, pretty hard to argue against that, but, um, but yeah, it's some some fun little nerdy stuff. I don't know. If <laughs> I don't think that they're still good today, but I think that they had a decent run back in the day. Now it ran for a few years. And it did. It was moderately successful, and they kind of followed the. Uh, ironically, I guess they followed the idea of that uh, the Harveys had originally, which was licensing characters. Um, so they had stuff like Care right. Bear comics that did pretty well for the company. Yeah, they were. I mean, yeah, they were doing a lot. I think that Harvey really did a good job throughout the years of licensing characters. You know, when my family even, 
sold the company, and a man out in California kind of took control of it and brought it out to Los Angeles. They were licensing the Flintstones, all the Hanna-Barbera characters, like the Jetsons, and they were doing New Kids on the Block, which, of course, you may remember as a big, you know, boy band of the early 90s, and they, you know, I've been told that they were so successful licensing them that they could have sold, you know, New Kids on the Block toilet paper. It was that, I mean, they were that popular. Um, And Saved by the Bell, and I mean, none of those were a Harvey Originals, but... You know, the people at Harvey, to Jacobson, who, you know, left started and worked for the new Harvey, um, you know, they were licensing still into the 90s. I mean, from the 40s till the 90s, Harvey, of course, they had owned and created some of their own characters. Of course, Richie Rich was the Harvey creation, but they really did a good job at kind of taking these wonderful characters, whether from the syndicated strip or just from the ether of, of media and turning it into something that I think really resonated with audiences. Yes, I also read a book about the 90s, uh, and New Kids on the Block and Saved by the Bell are like classic quarterbin fodder. I find them everywhere I go. <laughs> but they're actually not too bad. And I don't I, think they were, yeah. I mean, it seemed like they were fun. And i got to ask you, like, this sends me off on a tangent, are there some of the comics, so I'm sure you've reread uh, a bunch of those books, or read read a bunch of the the books from the different eras of Harvey. Are there certain artists or series that you kind of look back on and um, really you really enjoyed? Um, I love the Harvey girl characters, little Audrey, little Dot, and Lana. I just found like some of the. I mean, if you talk about progressive you look at some of the books that they were doing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, or just some of the panels, I mean, these were really independent and strong female characters that were dealing with just regular problems, and they were doing it in their own way, and there's a bit of sassy and <laughs> you know, attitude that all three of those girls exhibited um, that's just really, I mean, you just, you'll see some of them and they will make you just crack up because they're that clever. Um, you know, I mean, people regarded Harvey as like best gag writers in the business, um, to Jacobson in particular. Um, but yeah, I guess if I had answered me then or, or the, the hot stuff stuff in the sixties and seventies, I thought the hot stuff was brilliant. And I think a lot of kids really related to hot stuff because they were mischievous themselves, but the hot stuff you know, it was always hot stuff kind of self-sabotaging himself or kind of being a little rude to somebody else, and then that would cause him trouble, and then he'd learn, you know, I guess a good moral from that or learn from his friend Casper or some of the other characters that they would, you know, bring into the universe kind of what's wrong and what's right. But they did it in a very fun, creative way. So, yeah, ca- yeah I mean, I think... When- hot stuff, the little devil kid who couldn't stop himself from getting in trouble. I mean, every kid can re- can relate to that on some level. I think. Yeah, in any era, you know what I mean. It's 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 that's a timeless thing that, you know, when you cause trouble, there's a consequence. Um, and I think Harvey was really good at kind of, you know, making it lighthearted. But, you know, even though these characters were had a fantasy aspect to them, I think that there was still they were still dealing with real, relatable, and understandable problems that any kid who's eight or nine years old could actually kind of grasp and relate to. Any other books or creators that you uh, especially loved? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, 
there was an animator at Paramount named Steve Mufati. Steve's kind of known as just kind of the, he was the one that created a little logic character and worked on a lot of the early Casper stuff. And his work has a lot of emotion. And Warren Kremer uh, learned under Steve Mufati. And so it's an interesting thing when you see the kind of mm. shift from Mufati's work to Warren. It's like Warren, like, he was like the perfect student and just kind of took what Mufati did and just perfected it. Um, you know, Warren was the kind of guy, I've heard stories that Warren could just, uh, without lifting his pen, just draw Casper, draw hot stuff without lifting a pen, like it was handwriting. And that's the, some of those artists that would walk in those doors, it would just... It, 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 their minds would just be blown. They would, they never thought about drawing like it was handwriting. It needs to be effortless. It needs to be something that just comes off, you know, your brain. Uh, you don't really think about writing when you're writing. You just write. And I think that that's, it just freed a lot of people when they kind of saw that style. And I think Warren must have learned that from Mufati. Um, so he was great, but there was just so many artists that kind of came in and out of Harvey and from what I understand, it's even hard to, you know, discover who a lot of those artists were because Hardy really didn't give name credit to anybody, even right. Warren Kremer. Right. So uh, to me, it's, you know, you can talk to Mark Arnold and you can talk to Jerry Beck and some other really, some historians that have a really good eye for identifying that. But to me, I'm, I'm nowhere near as um, astute as they are in identifying who did what because I need a reference to say, okay, this person did this and this person lettered that and... Of course, Harvey was the only one. Uh, well, I mean, Marvel, of course, they were giving name credit. I think Archie was doing it at, at one point. But Harvey, you know, they felt like they were like Disney, and it was the Harvey brand, and that's that. Right. Um, Not even Carl Barks so, got uh, his name in the books, right? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that was just somewhat industry standard. Um, but, yeah, they even, I mean... By the time it was the 70s and 80s, I think that that had kind of turned, at least in the public sphere, where people wanted to know who was doing these comics because it was a selling point. Mm -hmm. And I know that Sid Jacobson really advocated and argued for that. I don't think Warren was as vocal about that. I think that uh, he didn't really mind. You know, he was getting work and he was doing what he loved and that didn't really matter to him. But, you know, Sid in particular was very... Uh, upfront about thinking that it would really help sell books if parents or kids, you know, they see this artist, they enjoyed the books, that that would be a sales method for them to actually sell more books. But they didn't want to do that for whatever reason. Wrong or right, I'm not really sure. Probably wrong, but <laughs> I don't know. Today, of course, Marvel, everybody's hailed. You know, everybody's really beloved from that era because they see the names in the books. So it's an interesting question. I'm not really sure. Okay. Yeah, the one I know uh, and I can recognize as artist is Ernie Cologne, who I know did a ton of work yeah, for Hardy. Yeah, who unfortunately uh, died several months ago. Yeah, just um, recently passed away. To, yeah. Yeah. Great cartoonist. I, I got to interview him. Yeah, he was really, really talented, and Ernie learned under Warren. So there was kind of a period, even though Warren was, you know, the lead, there was a period in time where Ernie and Warren were really the two main artists um and ernie uh ernie uh worked with sid later in life and they did a lot of incredible graphic novel work they they did a graphic novel um 
of Anne Frank's diary. They did a graphic novel about the 9-11 commission, which came out and nobody wanted to read this massive document about what happened to 9-11. And Ernie and Sid created a graphic novel of it. And it, it was, it was, I mean, it was a pretty big deal at the time. Graphic novels, of course, were kind of, that was kind of the start in the early 2000s, I think, of just a massive, um, I don't know what the word is, want or desire for these bigger graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were working, and Sid is still alive today. I think he still works. Um, and 90 years old, I believe. Oh, so, I mean, these guys were, yeah, I mean, these guys were doing it in their, you know, 70s, 80s. Um, uh, and unfortunately, Ernie, uh, died the, over the summer. Um, but I think he, I think he did work until he died, unfortunately. Yeah, I actually, um, I have a graphic novel that I just received um, from one of the publishers about America's founding documents, I think it is. Um, that he illustrated, right? yeah. So he was probably drawing up until the last few months of his life. It's just incredible. And his work is as solid as it ever was. Yeah, yeah, it really was. I mean, it was like the, everybody who worked at Harvey, when they talk about it in hindsight and they say it's unbelievable what they're still doing. Um, yeah, Ernie was really impressive. I think he really um, took a, you know it onto his own a little bit after he left Harvey, or at least, um, or at least you know after he left comic books specifically, and then started the graphic novel stuff. Um, so yeah, um, Ernie was unbelievable, um, and there was you know a lot of other artists at the time, but it was essentially Ernie and Warren who were the main people at Harvey from, you know, the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And that new generation came in in the revival in the 1990s. Did that go well for them? I know it helped launch Casper as a movie, which for a yeah. year or two was inescapable. Um, <laughs> but the 90s um, was the boom and bust era of the comics industry. Yeah, well, it was interesting because they, I mean, of course, there's Image Comics, which just came up, and Marvel was, I think, having a massive comeback. I think, in general, comics in the early 90s were just having a major renaissance. Um, from a comic book perspective, I think Harvey wanted to do comic books just to get their name back out there. I don't think at the time it was a business that was financially very successful. But I think it got themselves on newsstands, it got themselves in grocery stores, it gave them a little bit of you know, brand recognition. And the main goal was really for this big Casper movie to come out, which was huge. It was the number one movie in America. Today's dollars, it made $500 million in box wow. office sales, huh. foreign and domestic. It made another $500 million in today's uh, dollars in, in merchandise sales. I mean, this was huge. Um, you know, there's a there's an interesting metric um, called the Q-score, which is basically a... Uh, popularity metric that measures likability and awareness. The you know like Marilyn Manson may have a huge awareness uh, amongst everybody, but not a very high likability. So you'd have a pretty average Q score. But Casper, after that movie came out, had a higher Q score than Mickey Mouse, which was unbelievable. Wow. Um, to, to kids, you know, of that demographic between six and eleven. Um, so that movie was a huge impact, um, you know, not only financially, but to kind of media as a whole. I mean, you talk to people in their 20s and 30s and 
early 40s, um, or the parents that took their kids to that movie, I think that that is something that still is ingrained in a lot of young people's minds as their version of Casper. Um, you know, Spielberg executive produced it. And he was, Casper at the time, he was the number, or he was the first um, protagonist that was completely CGI'd um, ever in film. There was CGI in film, but never a character that was the main character uh, completely computer generated. It was a very new thing in the 90s. Um, so it was, I think it was a pretty groundbreaking film. Yeah, um, but I think about it. Was, it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we've talked to, I've talked to a lot of different people that we, you know, didn't get to film, but just, you know, just talking and, and doing that research. And, you know, we, I, I've talked with Oli Sasson, who's, Oli was originally directing this Roger Cormick uh, Fantastic Four movie in the 90s. Um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Doomed or have heard about this project, but they were going to put on this very low budget that felt big uh, Marvel film of the Fantastic Four. But all of a sudden, when they were marketing it and getting ready to go, they just they just shut it down. They just were like, no, we don't want this to be what we're doing anymore. And I think Marvel kind of learned, like, wow, what if, you know, these kid characters, Richie Rich and, and this Casper movie, they're putting a lot of money into this thing and it's kind of working. What if we put a lot of money into these characters and we could grab a much larger audience? Oh, that's and, so interesting. So it's like the missing link in the Marvel Studios story. Huh. Maybe, maybe. I never thought of that. Oh, he said, yeah, they probably realized that in some way or the other. Because, I mean, they really put some real money into these these movies. And they were really for young kids. I mean, they were for that demographic. But it did so well. And I think that the, the powers at Marvel probably were seeing that. I mean, you know, it was a very close community. Um, and they were realizing, yeah, maybe we should actually pump some real money into that and of course fantastic four and hulk i don't know the i don't know which one came first or which of their big flashes but those were pretty big budget movies and were very successful whereas they tried to bury a lot of those early films that they were doing that were micro budgets in the 90s so i don't know maybe you can kind of get some people on the line and confirm that for me oh, but i think that there was yeah i don't know i think there was a real you know effort to kind of realize oh we can actually make some real money on this if we put some real money in that's so interesting. I would have never thought of that. And, like, no one talks about... Uh, uh, frankly, we don't talk about that in the 1990s book about the Casper film. Now you have an idea in my head. I need to get back and, and revisit that. Um, wasn't there also a Macaulay Culkin movie of Richie Rich? Yes, there was in 1994. The interesting thing is that, that the rights to that movie was actually kind of sold before the person took over the company. So there was a little bit of back and forth about what that movie was actually going to look like. And it wasn't necessarily a full-on Harvey production because it was just going, it was moving through so many different hands. The family, I guess, had sold the rights to, I'm blanking on the company that actually uh, finished producing it. Um, but it was a really big film. Uh, we, you know, we've actually filmed uh, Regina Rich, uh, Christine Ebersole, who played Regina Rich, um, and just talking about how fun that movie was to make. And, uh, I mean, it was, if you look back at it, I think it still holds up, but I think that there was a little bit of, uh, people kind of, I don't know, just wondering if this was going to work because Macaulay at that 
age was not the age of Richie Rich. He was, um, you know, I think 13 or something like that, and he was supposed to be 10, but because the movie kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed, and no one knew exactly when it was going to start, of course, the child actor kept getting older. But, <laughs> I, that but I, think yeah. that they, I think that they did a pretty good job of, uh, of hiding how tall he was or how old he was. <laughs> I think he still looks like a kid. That's just me. But um, it did pretty well. Um, the Casper thing was a big success. And I think right before Casper came out, they actually took the company public, which was kind of unheard of at the time. The, the, the president and CEO who bought the company for my family was his mid-20s. At the time, he was the, you know, the, the youngest CEO and president to kind of take a company public. Nowadays, all these you know, tech startups you know, these whiz kids that are 19 are coming up and taking their companies public. But at the time, it was a really big deal. And I think that they, you know, maybe went in, maybe did that a little too soon because they really didn't have a giant portfolio to keep making projects. Um, this Casper thing was a massive success and it raised the stock price. But at the end of the day, when you're kind of beholden to stockholders at a quarterly basis instead of being able to kind of take these characters and nurture them and grow at an organic pace. I think that that was eventually this company's downfall. Um, and it lasted about 10 years. And then it was bought up by uh, Classic Media. And then Classic Media was then uh, bought by DreamWorks. And DreamWorks was then bought by Universal, which then merged with NBC. Uh-huh. And owned by Comcast. So Harvey is now uh, kind of a tiny little speck in this massive media conglomerate and they haven't really done much with the character since the first uh adaptation of casper um from that 1995 movie specifically uh just came out about a about a month ago uh where they have got a a geico commercial that features casper oh right yeah Uh, of course yeah and it's a brilliant advertisement and they you know they found out a way to kind of bring, you know, Geico loved to do that with dormant intellectual property. You're just famous intellectual property, uh, nostalgic stuff. And I think that, I think that's really strike, struck a chord with potentially Geico's market of, of young adults that are, uh, you know, looking to save some money on car insurance. So Casper, I guess, is a trustworthy uh, character <laughs> to that demographic. But um, that's really the only... Um, life that Casper has um, from in at least that iteration of Casper um, today, which is a little strange considering how impactful and successful that movie was. So what do you think the legacy is of Harvey Comics? I don't know. Well, I, why don't I turn that around and ask you? <laughs> <laughs> you, you you've done all this research. You've got, you can kind of put Harvey into to a, I don't know, you can kind of put it in context with some of these other groups. What do you think? Well, so I think, uh, first of all, Harvey's rise in the 1950s, along with Dell, really has a lot to do with hitting at the right time because they were producing the right comics for young baby boomer kids to get into and just have fun with. It was a low price to get uh, a lot of entertainment that could kind of resonate with you. Uh, as a as someone and kind of just be a gateway to reading of any type whether it's comics or young adult fiction right. or whatever it might be you know it, it was a gateway to encyclopedia brown books as much as it was to batman 
Um, and that then became the legacy to a point where, yeah, I mean, I remember my sister's friends. My sister never read comics, though I did. Uh, but her friends were always laughing about little Audrey and, and Casper and Richie Rich um, as just something that was just a fun, easy to obtain bit of entertainment for them. So I think the legacy is just a lot of pleasure it's given to people, but also, like you were saying, with with Casper um, back in these commercials, I think there's this there's this wonderful power to the IP that comes from kind of having been used for so long. So much was done with the character that there's a richness to it, and that uh, people respond to. I think because it just feels like there's something behind it in a way. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I think that there's a bit of timelessness to all these characters, all famous comic book characters, right? I mean, they, they there's something about them that resonates generation after generation, uh, whether it's Mickey Mouse or Superman or Batman. Um, you know, there's always something about them that each generation can somewhat resonate to. I think that's kind of the magic of a lot of the stuff that was created in the 40s and 50s that endured, right? Yeah. You know, these characters somehow yeah. were able to, you know, generation after generation evolve. And, and I mean, we look at what Joker just did at the box office mm-hmm. and how people are reacting to it. That's, I mean, whatever, I've seen some some comic book fans that aren't really thrilled with it, but I think overall, you know, a, uh, a removed audience that goes and sees that movie is like, wow, that is, that is a character that I never thought about in that way. And that for some reason is striking a chord with people today. And I think that's the magic is that I don't know when, when was Joker, uh, introduced in the late 30s or the early 40s. Yeah, I'm not really sure 19, the timeline of that. 1940. I mean, if you, I mean that's incredible. Right. If you think about it. 80, 80 years later, a character can can go and you know from what was written on the pages, still have that identity, and then be brought back today in a new way that resonates with people. I mean, it's unbelievable, and I think that most of the Hardy characters. Um, did that and could still do that. It's just kind of a shame that this company that was uh, huge and really impactful in media from the 40s um, up until the mid to late 90s um, hasn't been seen in a couple decades. And this documentary is really going to take you through the lineage of Harvey uh, what they were doing, the inside kind of scoop of what was happening, the downfall and the, the resurgence in the 90s, and then kind of explain maybe a little bit of why today we don't see these characters and the challenges that the company that is in charge of kind of taking these characters and bringing them back to the conscious of, of, of the public, what challenges they face in doing that. So I'm curious for you, so... I'll tell you this little story first, and then uh, I think it might resonate with you. So uh, my great uncle on my mother's side was a a famous theatrical producer. He just passed away at the age of 100. But he managed some of the leading comedic talents uh, of the era. Uh, And he was kind of a legend on my side of the family. Whenever we got to spend time with Uncle Jack, it was just fun and exciting. And there was something kind of larger than life about him. 
And since he passes, he's become kind of a family legend. It's just some, he's someone who, when my sister and I get together, we just have to share stories. Or when we see yeah. his, his daughters, it's the same thing. Um, do you feel the same way about uh, your grandparents and great-grandparents' legacies, that um, there's just something very special about that? Yeah, it's, it's really profound. I never got to meet my grandfather. He died before I was born, and his twin, Alfred, um, essentially died right before I was born. Um, and for me, talking with so many people that were working with them and were impacted by the characters that they put out in this, I mean, it, it, it's really, sometimes I get very emotional. I've had a lot of, um, of my friends' parents, particularly mothers, this one mother come up to me and thank me because mm. she was immensely impacted by the girl characters um, as, a, as a kid. And she was thanking me for my grandfather. I'm, I'm trying to say, I mean, that's really nice of you to say thank you to me, but <laughs> I, I never met my grandfather. I didn't do this. Right. You know what I mean? And so it, it can be pretty, um, uh, a very powerful emotional response that I got it's hard to put into words sometimes when I can, you know, kind of take two steps back and kind of look at this um, kind of amazing legacy as you kind of said that they left behind. Um, and it's just kind of strange to me that when everybody knows the histories of Marvel and the histories of DC and even Archie, that no one, when I talk to them, really, unless they've done some really intense research or were there, knows anything about Harvey. Um, and that... You know, it's a little strange, but I like kind of, you know, as I've dug deeper into the company history and my family's history, I started to understand why. And so I definitely wanted to make sure that that story was told because I think a lot of people were impacted by the characters and are still impacted by the characters today. You know, the weirdest thing to me is if you go to any Walgreens or Target or anything that's selling a Halloween uh branded content from other characters, what is the one character that you don't see at the stores right now? It's Casper, right? Mm-hmm. You go out, he should be, you don't see Casper. He should be everywhere, Halloween. right? Yes. Where's the ghost? Right. Where's the friendly ghost the kids love dressing up as, you know, when Casper was at its height. Uh, you just don't see it. Branding's not there, and it's a little strange, right? It's a little odd that this character that so many people still know today is just not in the, the the consumer world. It's a very strange thing. So on the one hand, it's very powerful, um, you know, when I've learned about my family legacy, but it's still a little confusing that these characters that were so immensely impactful aren't around the same way today. And I didn't get to experience that uh, like people generations before me did. So yeah. I think it's a very con- a, a group of very conflicting emotions. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when can we hopefully see the documentary? I, I wish I could tell you that, but we are developing it, and putting it together, and editing. And uh, I'll tell you, making a documentary is an incredible, incredible process. It takes so much time and fact checking and researching and making sure you have the right people working on it. So as soon as I know when it will be out, uh, I will scream it out the world. But <laughs> okay. right now, right now I, I can't confidently tell 
you or the audience when it, it will be out, but uh, hopefully soon. Oh, thank you.